This is exactly right. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Everybody, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And hey, everybody, we're back with you. It's January. Is it dry January? I mean... Is that, what, is that what that is? Every month is some new thing that people feel like they have to do to be human beings. And I'm, I I don't pay attention to any of I don't care about your mustache November. I don't care about your dry January. <laughs> <laughs> like, your fucking quilt August. Like, I don't care. <laughs> No, no. I think we should come up with our own shit. Uh, we would be like dirtbag June. I don't know. Yeah, I love a dirtbag June. Oh my god! Do you remember? Oh, we should have it like make it wistful. It'd be like, oh, remember when we had um, Diet Coke March, where like you had to do that Smirnoff Ice thing, but with Diet Coke, and you just had to Diet Coke everyone you saw. Like you can just make anything up, and people will do it for a month now. It's yeah. kind of wild. You'd be like, oh, it's head wrap. <laughs> it's head wrap November. <laughs> well, so, okay, your birthday's in June. Yeah. If we did a dirtbag June, what are the terms and conditions? All right. If we did a dirtbag June and you're going to basically live like me for a month. <laughs> so get ready to be in bed a lot. Oh, cool. A lot. And okay. you're going to have to have a whole, your sleep hygiene is going to improve by tenfold. Because you're going to have the Calm app. I keep telling people this. I actually told a friend of mine who was like one of my oldest friends. She's going through something medical right now. And she was kind of panicky. And we had a long talk. And at the end of it, I'm like, all right, Dick, if you have trouble sleeping tonight, you should. You have the Calm app. Like, listen to Killian Murphy <laughs> reading that story about Ireland. She texted me back the next day. And she's like, you were not kidding. That shit was like fucking Murphy. <laughs> Does he do the... um? What's his, what is it called, like, Night Train to Georgia or some shit? Like, what's Yeah, this? it's like Train to Ireland or something, okay, like Train to Red Ireland. Georgia. And I listen to it every night, and I fall asleep in five minutes without drugs. Like, you're going to have the best sleep of your life. You also are going to use the Calm app to take a nap every single day. There is a 26-minute nap uh, meditation, and you wake up to the sound of birds. You go to sleep to the sound of some dude, and you wake up to the sound of birds. Because he eventually shuts up, and then you're just asleep. Yeah. And then you wake up completely refreshed. So your sleep is going to be incredible. Also get used to not showering every day. Okay. I don't know about y'all, but I don't live with anybody. So as long as I can stand my own funk, sometimes it can go for two days. Two days. Just get used to living in your own filth for a minute. Let your, bo let your body do its thing. 
Yeah. <laughs> for a couple of days. Um, throw out your razors. Sure. I don't care if it's June. Throw them out. You don't need them. It's dirt bag June. You don't need It's dirt bag June. Get the fuck rid of your fucking razors. Yeah. What else can you... Oh, you're going to cook like a motherfucker. You're going to have a meal plan. Because I okay. meal plan. Okay. So you're going to meal plan. And then you're going to destroy that meal plan with snacks. Like you're going to make a fucking Strega Nona size pot of popcorn every day. <laughs> And like ladle it out like a like like a soup every day. Like I I eat like a fucking cauldron of popcorn daily. That's right. It's like in a Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's getting cooked. Absolutely. The, so it's just popcorn, basically. You're saying, like, yeah, just plain popcorn snack on it throughout the day, so that when actual meal times come around and you've had this beautiful meal plan, and maybe you cooked a delicious white bean soup, and then you're not hungry because you've just been eating popcorn for three hours straight. Okay, sounds so good so far. Happen. Yeah. So that might happen. You're like, you might actually get some um, vitamin deficiency during Dirtbag June, but you'll recover. Oh you'll recover <laughs> in July. What do you mean by vitamin? Like, am I going to have scurvy? Like, my teeth yeah. going to fall out? What's going on? You might get gout. I'm just saying. <laughs> gout, dude. <laughs> Yo, steaks just got raised. It's one thing to be like, oh, listen to the Calm app and not shower. That's easy. Gout, yeah. girl, gout. I don't have gout. I'm just saying you might get gout. I don't know your medical <laughs> history, folks. You're asking people to go get gout for <laughs> Dirtbag June. That's fucking crazy. In Dirtbag June, you get gout. <laughs> it's true, though. True, um, true, though. You have to get a divorce or break up with whoever you're dating. <laughs> you got to spend Dirtbag June alone, preferably. <laughs> I don't care if you get remarried in July or like whatever, but you have to be separated from your partner for all of June. You have to start smoking, but you can only smoke basic 120s. Oh, damn. How about that? <laughs> that's, that's real dirtbag territory. <laughs> now you that got my hot. The wheels are turning. What, what else could we do? Now that you put gout on the table, that is hot dirtbag territory. Well, now that gout's on the table, also, it's going to be the opposite of dry January, and you're just going to, you're going to drink anytime somebody hurts your feelings. <laughs> Anytime you get upset on the internet, you're just going to drink a little bit. Every time you just feel like the world is beating you down. Yeah. And if you're not, if you don't drink alcohol, because, you know, I don't drink a lot of alcohol. Um, and I really don't drink at home at all. But if you don't drink alcohol, again, Diet Coke is there for you. Take a shot. You'll be hopped up on caffeine. Mm -hmm. We just want you to be, like, not hormonally stable during Dirtbag January. So either okay. do that with alcohol or Diet Coke or, like, your drink of choice. Um, okay. But you either have to raise the sugar real high or raise the alcohol real high for Dirtbag January. Yeah, maybe you can get those um, extremely expensive sodas delivered to your house, the ones that you suggested. <laughs> the <Frickers. laughs> The $40 six-pack. Can I tell you, I was not doing that for any kind of promo or advertising. I genuinely love Sprecker's so soda. And they reached out because somebody tagged them in a comment on Instagram. And they were like, did they mention us on the podcast? And I was like, so I wrote back and I'm like, oh yeah, like we talked about you in a bonus episode about how much I love this soda. And I was just telling Millie that it's the best soda in the, in the country. And they're like, well, let us send you a case. And they sent me a case of sodas. What about me? I've never even fucking tried it. You didn't send me? <laughs> what, you don't call no more? Spraggers? What the fuck? Here's the thing. They sent me a case of soda, so I'm going to send you some of their sodas. Look. You, you know me. Look, I know you don't like to give people your government name. I'm not about <laughs> to give them your address. So I was like, you send it to me, and I will send it to Millie. 
<laughs> look. Because I'm going to pluck out. Don't send it to the P.O. box because our P.O. box is, <laughs> I won't even Languishing. tell you. It was. It's overflowing. Um, <laughs> Did they send you a notice? <laughs> well, yes. And it, when I went in there and checked it the last time, there was like four yellow slips in there, being like, "We're gonna stop putting mail in here." And you know what, though, it's not because. I mean, listen, our, we do get a lot of mail, which is awesome. But also, like, all of the previous PO box tenants are yeah. getting so much fucking mail that I'm like. Could you not put their shit in our box? Exactly. Maybe look at the name. Maybe check the name. Yeah. And I'm like, yo, there's there's a guy. I think his name is Nobby. I think it's Nobby. (laughs) And he gets the craziest, biggest envelopes. I think they're from like some kind of work thing or something like that. But it's like he's getting humongous packets of things. And I'm like... Yo, this guy doesn't live here. Can you fucking exactly. figure this out? He might you need this too. It looks like it's stapled pages. Like this, this is an affidavit. Can you give this to this guy, please? <laughs> this is this from is when you refuse to participate in Dirtbag Jew, Nobby, <laughs> and you're being sued. <laughs> oh, that is also a big part of Dirtbag June is you have to fight someone. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> you have to just just start a fight with somebody. <laughs> I don't care if you're smoking a basic 100 outside, 120 outside of a bar and you just fucking cold cock somebody. I don't care if you fight with your mother-in-law, your father-in-law. Yo, were you were you at my house? When, was it when you were here in Atlanta when we were talking about like the best high school fights we'd ever seen? No. Were you down here? Okay, I don't know who I was talking to, but I got in this conversation recently about the best fights we saw in high school. I want your high school fight stories. Can we request that? Let's not, because it could get into legal territory. (laughs) I know. I was about to say, we are always inciting violence and (sighs) disgusting habits. Gout. Apparently, we're inciting gout. I'm going to call it right now and say we do dirtbag January through June. (laughs) <laughs> dirtbag half year take the challenge <laughs> yeah. dirtbag first and second quarter of 2023 um, also dirtbag june you have to toss an unexpected animal at somebody <laughs> like grab a seagull from the sky and just toss it into somebody's car while they're driving by yo i'd put a possum in there put a place a place a possum in a car a raccoon a yeah. raccoon in a car will fucking drive that thing away. <laughs> That's true. Raccoons don't mess. Yeah. But yeah. Well, this is all, all right, good. Cool. Somebody get this on paper uh, and, and we'll mail it to ourselves. That way it's a legally binding document. Awesome. And we're, uh, we've are we got our own thing now. Now we don't have to do all the other crap. We don't have to do yeah. Movember. November. Is that what it's called? Movember? Mustache November? So. That's- it doesn't even make sense. That's kind of lazy. And here, here's the lie. other thing. Like, I know all of these things tend to, they tend to originate from place of good intention where someone's like, let's grow mustaches so that we can support muscular dystrophy or something. Like, it all, right. but then it gets twisted into like, we're not going to jack off for the whole month and our mustache <laughs> proves it. And you're like, what? What is going, what about the muscular dystrophy kids? How the fuck does this get so convoluted? Are we still donating to St. Jude Children's Hospital when right. we don't jack off? What the fuck is this? <laughs> yes. What is how this? Do you, 
Can we have some proven metrics here? Like, seriously? <laughs> Get over it. That's that's truly the thing that I can't say. Like, I would not mind at all if every month was a different, well-intentioned, charitable giving situation. But it never is. Yeah. Or if it starts out that way, it is morphed into something truly depraved. Yeah. And then it gets co-opted by the the brands, by the companies. Yes. And that's when it's just like, come on. Like, oh, uh, doll- no, I'm not going to say any brands. Because what if they advertise on our network? I was going to say Dollar Shave Club, no it's jack satire. off for the kids. Yeah, <laughs> for the kids, damn. <laughs> no, no jack off for the kids. Love, Gillette. <laughs> You're like, how does this even make sense? Lending Tree presents <laughs> Don't Touch Your Dan Don't Touch Your Dick January for Human Trafficking to Fight Human Trafficking. Freshly presents Fat Free February. If you touch your body, we will get you. You go to jail. <laughs> If you touch yourself, you have to give us $5,000. And if you don't, you have to give us ten. Oh my God. Oh, I could truly do this all day. I love coming up with business ideas or, or such nonsense. So, The fact that you think these are viable business ideas is why we are doomed to never have a business. I know. I was like, how do we monetize Dirtbag June? How do we? How do we get sponsors? <laughs> maybe we get who? Maybe we get what? Like we'll get like the donut and beer industry to get in on this gout thing. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there's your tagline: Get in on this gout. <laughs> Not enough young people have gout. How do we fix this, people? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh, Gout Jesus for the Christ. children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I've hijacked about 15 minutes on these ideas, you have anything going on this week? What's up? Oh God, of course not. Um, I I finished my Uber list. I've started my Uber list for the year. Um, Tell like them start- what the Uber list is, because I want to make sure everyone knows it's brilliant. Okay. So this is a concept created by Nicole Lohr, N-I-K-O-L-L-O-H-R. And I found, she created this over 20 years ago, and I found out about this from her college roommate and long-term friend, Kelly Sue DeConnick, who's my long-term friend. I've known Kelly Sue for over 20 years as well. And we used to be on a forum, an internet chat forum together. And that's how I started doing it. Like, I looked at my folder this year and I was like, I've been doing the Uber list for over 20 years. This is wild. But the concept is that you add 100 to whatever the last two digits of the year are. So for this year, it's 123. And you come up with 123 goals for the year, but they are achievable goals. So for example, one of my goals this year is get a doorbell. (laughs) Just just get a doorbell Mm because I don't have one. And I never know when people, people like call me and text me all the time. They're like, I've been at your front door knocking for like 25 fucking minutes. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So simple things like that, like get a doorbell, hang a picture like in the hallway or like, you know, just simple achievable things so that by the end of the year, you just kind of feel a little bit happier, a little more fulfilled. And the way that I kind of use the list is so that I have that check-in point to kind of say, 
I'm doing things or I'm accomplishing things or I'm moving forward on a project. I'm taking steps towards things I want to do. Like for a long time, I had on my list, like, you know, write a book, write a book, write a book. And then I changed it to write an outline, write an essay, like, right. And so I baby stepped my way into um, kind of my dreams, I guess you could say, by Mm -hmm. just every year taking little steps towards them. So it's, to me, very achievable, very attainable. Um, Please look up Nicole. She's a fantastic person. And um, I do this list every single year. I've been doing it for over 20 years. Okay. Now... I, lo- I love whenever we bring up the Uber list. I always want to check in with you at the beginning of the year because it's a, a tradition for you, and I love that. Thanks. But you also have another tradition I that do. we have to check in on at the beginning of every year. And I want to know, have you changed your list of enemies this year or not? Oh, absolutely. I shake it up every year. Number <laughs> one spot is never changing. That is okay. a lifelong enemy for me. We don't reveal who that is. Obviously. I think I already did on another pod. Go listen to some other podcast from like January. I think I did one year. Reveal okay. it. Okay. So have you what what's the vibe? Did you move some people around? I moved new, to, new people? I, well, I limit it to five people. And for me, it's a motivational list. It's not like like kill shots or anything. Like it's just purely the way that I use my list of enemies is I think that whatever's going on with these people, I want my life or my work or my friendships or whatever to be better than what they're putting out into the world. Like, I just want to be able to put things out in the world to counteract what I think is just some bullshit. Yeah. So, and sometimes there are just people I truly can't stand and I want to beat them in life. So, (laughs) it's the only, the only competitive bone in my body is also the only, only bitchy bone in my body. Sure. They're the no. same bone. Look, I think it's hilarious. I think it's fucking <laughs> hilarious. And I also think, yeah, you're right. It's kind of like a backdoor motivator to be like, these are the people who fucking suck and let me be better than them this year. Yeah. And you the know? goal, I never show anyone the list. I never, no one has ever seen my list of enemies. I don't have it in a book called List of Enemies. Like, it's hidden. It's tucked away. I write it. I remember, I memorize it. I burn it. It's very ceremonial for me. Yeah. But also, it is kind of the the thrust of my years. Like, I better come out at the end of this year feeling like I'm a better person than these dirtbags. Yeah. Absolutely. You know... I I thought had thought about this tradition of yours in the past and thought I don't know if I can create a list because I don't know if I hate anyone that badly but that's changed. Mm. Oh yeah. I won't, I won't go into I won't go into it. Of course, why would I go into it? No, but you I'm can't. That's saying. not the not the spirit of the list of enemies. Yeah. But also throw some celebrities on there, man. You don't have to be people, they don't have to be people in your day-to-day life. They can just be people that you're like, come on, man, really? That's what you're doing with your time and your money? <laughs> and then you just want to be better than that. I I think you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to kind of get, how do I say? You're gonna have to push down the Catholic urge to get to your list of enemies. Yeah. Cause I'm sure it feels shitty to be like. I don't like this person, and I'm going to write it down and make it the basis of my year to be better than 
Yeah. No, Catholicism will be like, who are your list of enemies? Number one, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Pray for them. (laughs) Pray for me. I make bad decisions and everything's my fault. (laughs) So you're right. I'm going to have to get over that shit. And you know what, though? I mean, I think think a lot of... The end of 2022 was rough for a lot of people. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of people. We were fucking talking about taking vacations and going on Viking River cruises and whatnot. I had a lot of friends who were going through, like, really rough stuff. Like, really bad stuff. And I don't know. I guess I I don't want to start the year in an angry space, but I'm also like, yo, like, I need to burn off this energy. You know? Yeah. That's the beauty of the list is you write it down, you literally burn it, and you just kind of like put it out to the universe. I don't sit down every day and like cross it off the list and double check it and like make notes in the margins. I just make the list so that I know in my heart I will be a better person this year. Yeah. That's good. That's 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 taking the rage and doing something really creative and productive with it. And I I think that's awesome. I need to learn how to do stuff like that. (laughs) I need to to not sit in my feelings. (laughs) My negative feelings about everything. Yeah. I have an enemy list, but we'll work on it. And that's truly where it developed. Like, I will will help you develop it if you would like, without having to ever see it. But And I've talked about this to my therapist. Like, am I deranged? Like, what's going on with me that I do this list every year? But I think that... That's kind of the spirit in which I started the list for myself is that I was sick of sitting with my negative feelings and having them turn into depression and like, you know, self-doubt and weird emotional crisis points. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. why don't I just put this out into the world and just kind of make it make my intentions known and hopefully that'll help me. And it has. It's helped me tremendously. I'm incredibly happy and successful. (laughs) (laughs) this podcast is proof this is everything i've ever wanted (laughs) get to know us get a load of us hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you want to get into our theme right now? Of course I do, because I thought of it and it's so gross and funny. You did fucking think of it. And I, I was like, you when you said it, I was like, holy fucking shit. It's a it it's a barn burner already. And it was the the first thing that came out of my mouth when we were considering this, you know, this theme. Yeah. Um first thing that came out of my mouth. Like I didn't even there was no filter. And I remember the look on your face where you're like, wow, she said that real fast. <laughs> well, fucking she tell them what it is to bring had it that, up. Had that in the back pocket. So yeah. this week's theme is banging to the oldies. <laughs> Our producer Casey says this is the best theme we've ever done. And I will take his word for it. Also, can we take a minute and just wish Casey a happy birthday? Yes. It, Casey this, is a smooth yes. 75 years old. 
doesn't look a day over. <laughs> I'm kidding. Casey's a very wonderful and lovely young man, and we adore him as a person mm-hmm. and as a producer. And I don't think I don't know what our lives would be without Casey. And I don't want to try. I don't even want to imagine it. Oh, and don't have... don't make it happen. It'll like we're we love him so much. We don't want him to go away. We don't even want to in like talk about it to jinx it. You know what I no, mean? No, I'm knocking on wood. I'm like yeah. I will actively. Like I, I'm, I will sabotage his career if it means he gets to stay with us. Yeah. Well, I. Um, How about that? He just said yes. we're so sweet. Did you hear the part where I said I will sabotage your career if it means like, if you get to stay with our show? <laughs> I would never. And you know this. I don't love a lot of men. I don't even yeah. like a lot of men. And Casey is. I would do anything for Casey. He's the greatest dude. Yeah. Alive, just so sweet, so funny, so smart. He's he's the finest male Capricorn I know. So there you go. Put it on a t-shirt, but please <laughs> send him happy birthday wishes on our social media or in our email. Um, we truly like the 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 mechanics of this podcast do not work without him. So absolutely, we are grateful. So it's in and the now spirit of Casey's birthday. Yeah, we're gonna talk about. Bang into the oldies, am I right? Let's talk so, about old people who fuck. <laughs> well, I want to ask you this because, you know, I think it's interesting that we both brought movies to the table where mm-hmm. the lady is old and the man is young. Hell yeah. So, okay, and I meant to look this up before we started the episode. The um, origin of the term May-December romance. Do you know what oh, that... Oh, yeah. I didn't look that up either um, because I'm awesome at this. <laughs> well, somebody will tell us, I'm sure, in the in our comments on Instagram. Please do. Please do. But, you know, I don't know. These are two fucking classics of that genre, of the May-December romance, of the um, older lady, younger man. Uh, your film is... So, it's such a feel-good for me. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it is like, every time I watch it, I just love it. I love it without feeling dorky about it. I just love yeah. it purely. And I am like, I don't know. I was so glad to to have to watch it for the podcast. I see I see it a lot, like, you know, every couple years. But I'm also yeah. like, every time I see it, it's so charming. It's truly one of those films that's like, I feel like it's in my DNA. Yeah. Like, I just... Love it, and I've loved it from the moment I saw it, and I, I just have such reverence and just a real tenderness for for my movie and your movie as well. Like I've seen your movie a couple of times, and I think it is absolutely fascinating. Like the time it took takes place in, the people that are involved. Like it is a really subtle and stunning film that I'm always happy to to watch again. Awesome! I'm really glad. I have a lot to say about it. Um, so I'm really excited to get into it. And we're you're going first this week. Oh my god. So yeah, I am. Well, let's get into it. Bang into the oldies. (laughs) My film was released in 1971. It was written by Colin Higgins and directed by Hal Ashby. My movie is Harold and Maude. Oh, Harold. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. Can't let the world judge you too much. I have so much to say about this movie. I'm going to try to keep it a little bit condensed. The people involved with this film are fantastic and have all had stunning and sterling careers. But I think it's important for people to know that this movie 
was a flop when it first came out. It wasn't profitable until 1983, 12 entire years later after it was released. And it was primarily because it became a, a, a cult favorite, thanks to like repertory theaters and revival houses um, who would play the film constantly, that it became a cult classic. And that's what helped the film survive. And I think also the release of um, like home videos and, you know, video release also helped a lot because that's how I first saw it. It's like there was always somebody who had a copy of Harold and Maude and was like, you have to see this. And a lot of teenagers were introduced to this film from from my era, from our era um, in that way. So this is, again, a perfect example of a film that we may never have seen if it weren't for the enthusiasm of people who loved it um, and who kind of kept it alive. And now it's, you know, now it's it was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry in 1997. It's like on the AFI's 100 Funniest Movies. And, you know, it's been turned into a novel and a play. And, like, it's just a hugely popular film. Mm-hmm. I would say, yep. But this also, what's interesting about the fact that it became such a popular film is that the screenwriter, Colin Higgins, wrote, started writing this movie as part of his master's thesis at UCLA. Mm-hmm. I am so impressed by people who did that. So did the person who wrote, the woman who wrote Mermaids, right? Like it was part of her, the book was part of her master's thesis. I'm impressed by anyone who comes out of a grad school program with like producible work. Good for him. Yeah, That's it's great. incredible. And he wasn't, uh, you know, Higgins also thought he was going to direct the film, but once he sold it, and the the story of him actually selling it was really funny because he was like a pool boy who worked for somebody and like somebody's wife read it and liked it and passed it on to her husband who happened to work in film. It was just like a very 70s, like 60s, 70s story of like how films came to be made sometimes. Yeah. Um, but when Hal Ashby was brought on, he made the decision to include Higgins as like a co-director so that he could learn the business because part of the reason he wasn't allowed to direct the movie is that he didn't have any experience. So, mm. And this all comes from Wikipedia. So if you're like Colin Higgins' granddaughter or something and you have a different <laughs> version, just tell me. We will correct. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Hal Ashby, by the way, is an incredibly prolific director. I find him so interesting in the, the things that he chose to work on. Yeah. Um, and I'm especially and like really interested in the fact that a lot of his movies kind of languished uh, in legal issues, like behind the scenes legal issues. But so the things that he was able to produce were so wonderful that it makes me wonder like, well, what would have happened if he had been able to, you know, actually make these other movies that he was attached to? One of my other all-time favorite movies being there is a Hal Ashby joint. The Last Detail shampoo coming home i mean he just really has a lot of movies that are very different from each other yeah. um as part of his repertoire which i think is and they're all a little bit weird yeah the, <laughs> like, the landlord if you've never seen the landlord that movie I, like I, every time i think about hal ashby i think i think of him as being kind of this like counterculture guy i mean he was kind of mm. he looked like a hippie he was like kind of had like a bohemian lifestyle i know there's that documentary about him that came out yeah. like I don't know when that came out. It either came out a few years ago or like a decade ago. I don't remember. But um, yeah, I mean, he's actually in the movie at one point. He's like in the um, 
I guess they're at a carnival or something like that. And he's like, yeah. you catch a glimpse of him and you're like, oh my God, that dude's got the longest hair and a huge <laughs> beard. And those like David Koreshi glasses. And I'm like, he was like a hip dude. He was like the original yeah. hips, hipster dude, basically. And he and he knew that he was kind of out of sync with the with his counterparts. Yeah. Um, because he he kind of he grew up in Utah in this in this Mormon family, and he was married five times in his life. But he was his first divorce happened by the time he was nineteen years old. Um, so he, but he's a high school dropout, and so he would like lie about his age and lie about his credentials so he could get work and get like he knew that he wasn't in the same league because he was kind of a little bit of an outsider. Yeah. Um, so, so, but he he's like, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm just going to lie about what I yeah. <laughs> want my. I'm going to lie about what it looks like on paper so you'll accept me. And then I'm going to go and be weird. Um, But he's, yeah, that documentary is very interesting. His movies are incredibly interesting. And he unfortunately died um, very young. He was 59 years old. He died of pancreatic cancer. Mm. Um, So again, I keep thinking about like what could have been or what, you know, the movies that he wasn't able to make while he was alive. And, you know, if, if he'd been able to push those through, we'd have even more Hal Ashby to watch now mm-hmm. that he's unfortunately gone um but yeah so he wrote he he happened to direct one of my favorite movies of all time harold and maude now when we think of the the cast of this film um it's a limited cast there's not a lot of people in it but they're all like heroically good in the roles that they play so bud court who plays harold was definitely an up-and-coming, like, he had a budding career before Harold and Maude. He'd been in a couple of big-budget films. Um, But he almost died in a car accident in 1979. And the cost of the recovery and the surgeries and the court cases kind of derailed his career for a little bit. He still worked, but he didn't have that, like... Plus, this movie wasn't really a big hit until 12 years after it came out. So he still worked, but he didn't have, like, the thriving career that I think he could have had had he not been in this near-fatal accident. And Ruth Gordon, who plays Maude, is an acclaimed star of stage and screen, mm-hmm. uh, but she's also was really prolific in her own right. Like, she wrote a lot of books and plays and film scripts. Um, yep. And both actors were nominated for Best Actor and Actress at the Golden Globes, which I thought was really sweet. That's that is sweet. Yeah. she. I had so. to look her up when... Um, I mean, I know who she is, obviously. I mean, um, but I was like, Asking Siri, like, how old was Ruth Gordon when she made this movie? And she was seventy five. She, like, was, she 75. was that age. She was yeah. that age. So she was seventy five. So she was really like walking the walk and talk and talking the talk. And also, high five to them for actually casting a seventy five year old. Yeah, and I because I you know obviously like she she's so iconic and Rosemary's Baby, mm-hmm. and you know that came out only a few years before this movie. And for some reason, I was like, I, she's got to be in her 50s in that movie. I don't know what I thought. I, th- for, I don't know if it's because of the outfits or something. I just thought, yeah. okay, she seems younger in Rosemary's Baby, even though this movie came out, like, what, three years after? Yeah. And she's 75? And I was like, what? <laughs> How did that happen? And she's just, she's so wonderful. And I feel like this role is very... It was wonderful that she got to play such a life-affirming role in her later years. And I think that she kind of had that spirit where, you know, she did a lot of benefit things and she would, she just, I don't know, like her husband talked about her after she passed away and it just seemed like she was 
not like as extreme as Ma, but she was really full of life. And so I think that she's, it's worth it to check out her books and um, her plays and her other movies uh, because she's just phenomenal. Other important part of this film, and then I promise I'm going to get to the one sentence synopsis. The other important part of this film and possibly the most memorable part of this film is that the cat, the, the, the cat, the soundtrack was completely done by Cat Stevens, Yusuf Islam, because he mm-hmm. has converted uh, since he released these songs. This soundtrack is like re- was revolutionary in my life as mm-hmm. a, as a young person. I don't know, like well, some people grew up with you know, like their parents seeing Cat Stevens in the car, and that was not like my mom was like disco Donna Summer, like <laughs> yeah. All the way. So that was not the vibe. Um, so when I first heard Cat Stevens, it was in this film. Yeah. And it just, there's something so gentle about his music and the emotion of his music that fits yeah. this movie perfectly. Because a lot yeah. of these songs were taken from like previously released um, records. So they weren't necessarily made for the movie. I think there were, there were a lot of like, um, a lot of his songs were turned into like down tempo songs for the movie, but they were pulled from other records. So it really gave me a lot to dig into as a kid. And again, like he's, he's converted and his name is Yusuf Islam. He still plays music, but not these songs. Um, and I just find him really interesting. Yeah. He's very like gentle, soothing, like you said, like just beautiful. That, oh my God, what is my favorite song of his that is um, <laughs> so epic? Lady Darbinville. Have you heard that oh, song yeah. by him? It's like this crazy, like, love song. It, it, it just is very, like, I don't know, Renaissance Festival-esque to me, where it's like, you'll have to, you'll have <laughs> oh to hear God. it. But when you listen to it, you'll be like, oh, this is like, so, this is like some fucking epic <laughs> like medieval love song shit. Like this is the arrangement is super like all over the place, and I I don't know. I love it. My lady why do you greet me so? It's high drama. Let's just say that it's high. This, high it drama. is some loot rock. It is loot <laughs> rock. You didn't think it was possible. You didn't think it was possible, but there it is. <laughs> Yes, also, anyway. I gotta say, and I didn't know this until I looked it up, um, Colin Higgins originally wanted Elton John to not only be in the movie, but do the full soundtrack. Can oh, you imagine weird. this movie with Elton John songs? Oh, I know. I like Elton John, too, not gonna lie. 70s Elton John yeah. is fucking awesome. I can't imagine him being in the movie, though. Was he yeah, supposed to have been Harold? Is that what the... I think he was, he's like, I just want him in here as Harold. Like, I think he was supposed to be Harold, then maybe the uncle, and then he wanted him to do the whole soundtrack. Wow. And I'm like, I love Elton John, but I can't yeah. imagine it for this movie. Yeah. I can't imagine. And now you're just like, I can't imagine anybody but Bud Court being Harold. So that's interesting. At all. Yeah. At all. So we're going to get to the the meat of this, the actual movie. The nut meat. Speaking of food, <laughs> speaking of food and the and the cast list, I love... There's two actors in the, in this movie that have the greatest names ever. Uh, One of whom is named Eric Christmas. Yes. And the other is named Vivian Pickles. <laughs> Vivian Pickles plays Harold's mom. And it is the most divorific name I've ever heard. And Eric Christmas plays a priest. Like, it just could not get more perfectly cast. 
Eric Christmas and Vivian Pickles. That's fucking amazing. What 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 a couple of names. Anyway, I feel like without having looked it up at all, I feel like those are the kind of stage names you pick when you're like a little bit sauced. You're like, I'm <laughs> Vivian Pickles. <laughs> hey, I'm Eric Christmas. <laughs> My name's <Burp>. uh. <laughs> Or like when you're on the run and somebody asks you your name. Eric. Eric what? Eric uh, Christmas. <laughs> no disrespect to the Christmas family. We just love the name so much. We can't help. We can't help it. I love it. I love it so much. So this movie, one, ten- one sentence synopsis. A death-obsessed young man meets a life-obsessed septuagenarian who proceeds to rock his world. Perfect. Now... At the thrust of this film, the whole plot of this film, and we are going to be talking about suicide or staged suicide. So if that is something that makes you want to turn it off, now is a good point to turn off the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, because Harold's thing, in general, is he likes to pretend he's killing himself. I should not be laughing already, but he likes to pretend he's killing himself. So the first scene in this movie is a very ceremonial hanging while his mother comes in and makes a phone call. And the fact that she ignores him while he's hanging there is how you know this is going to be a very different kind of movie. And he's just kind of hanging there laughing And she says, oh, I suppose you think this is very funny, Harold. And she does that a lot. She says that a lot. But what's being set up here is this premise that nobody in Harold's life understands him or gets him. He lives in this very moneyed, lavish world. Um, His father is dead. We don't understand what he did, but he left this big, you know, house. And the mom is like very like, uh, like she swans around and doesn't have much to do and kind of like... You know, she's just kind of like one of those kept women, <laughs> like very mm-hmm. high class kept kept woman uh, who really her only counterpart in this film that's her age is Harold's uncle, who's a former <laughs> former military man who lost his arm in the service. Yeah, he's uh, a total like speaking of being there, he's a total like Peter Sellers type. He's got this completely. like, <laughs> you know, f- like really overblown like military guy thing it's hilarious so he's so intense about like the military is what's gonna get your life straight and you gotta do it and they're both really fed up with him like his mom originally sends him to a psychiatrist and at the beginning of the film after the hanging doesn't work so he pretends that he's like cut himself up in her bathroom and there's just like blood splattered everywhere and she's like i can't live like this anymore so she sends him to a psychiatrist where he reveals that he has staged over 15 suicides and over the course of the film you learn why he started to do that um i don't want to spoil that for anyone who hasn't seen it but it comes from a very tender place um of somebody who just doesn't fit in in the world and you know the world the world that's been aff- that's been presented to him is not something that he wants to engage with um so he goes to funerals for fun and he buys an old hearse um his mom can't stand it so she scraps the hearse and gets him a jaguar which he also turns into a hearse it's so funny yeah it's pretty tight customizations i got to say Love so that tight part. love that part <laughs> so tight so he meets maud at one of these funerals. And they're both there for very different reasons. And they're both uninvited. So Maud is, as you come to learn more about Maud, she is a 79-year-old woman who is just, one, she can't drive, but she steals cars all the time. 
Mm-hmm. And at one point, she steals Harold's car, and she's like, this is a nice ride. And he's like, it's mine. <laughs> it's my hearse. Um, but she just really lives by the seat of her pants and doesn't spend a moment of her day uh, being unhappy. Like, she just does such strange things. Like, she, she eventually takes him, she lives in this old converted railroad car, and she brings Harold over, and she has these things called uh, aromatics that she's like, this is like snow in in New York City or something. Like, she just kind of does all these strange things. And when I was a kid watching this movie, I'm like, that's exactly who I want to be when I'm 79 yeah. years old. Like, her house is filled with life and memories and weirdness. And it was all I wanted. Yeah, she was just, like, kind of, like, the original, like, quirky, artsy, you know, filled with life lady that everybody... She just enchants everybody that she meets, right? Like everybody Completely. loves her when they meet her. So, why would you? Why would you not want to be that? It's like such a good, such a good character. Completely. And then she's, she's really again like she's fly by the seat of her pants. She makes things up as she goes, and Harold starts to hang out with her, and you know he starts to kind of do more things that that maud would do instead of you know constantly going to funerals and he's still pretty death obsessed and he is also being confronted with the fact that his mother who is super fed up with him and you know is like you're either gonna like you have to get married it's time like let's let let you become some other woman's problem essentially um Mm -hmm. and she starts (laughs) setting him up on these dates and every single date he has he pretends to be totally normal and then he stages another suicide (laughs) attempt in front of the date. So in the first date, he pretends to set himself on fire in the yard. Uh, in the second date, he like casually cuts his hand off with a cleaver. It's that kind of shit. Like he's like, That's yeah, so you can awesome. set me up. It's so great. I know. He's I'm like, like, that girl like freaks out. And I'm like, actually, that's a marriage proposal for that me. Is- for <laughs> me. <laughs> don't you be cutting off that hand if you don't want to marry this woman right here. Because I'm ready, boo. I'm ready. Don't you be cutting off that hand if you're not. Don't let your your severed hand write a check that your proposal hand can't catch. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. But he's like, yeah, he's like, you can set me up all you want, but it's going to go like this every time. And in the meantime, he's hanging out with Maude and having an, an absolute blast. She also tries to send him into the military, and he's like, She's like, I'm talking to your uncle. You're going to the military. So he conspires with Maude to trick the uncle into thinking that he's murdered her so that like he's just gone crazy so that he won't even mention being put in the military again. So what's developing is like a very tender and sweet friendship. And, you know, they're, they're having these more and more tender moments. There's this one scene where they're holding hands or sitting down outside. And it's like this bright, sunny day. And he kind of grabs her hand to hold it. And he notices it. Um, her tattoo mm-hmm. and it's never mentioned it's never discussed but it's clear that she is a survivor of the holocaust mm-hmm. and I think that does something to Harold in realizing like oh there's potentially a much bigger reason behind you know why this woman jumps at life and leaps at life so so vigorously. Right. Um, and I think it's meant for the audience to understand that as well. Uh, she does talk about her husband and like kind of her her former life leading up to this, but that's the moment that I always think, oh, <laughs> like this is why, you know, she's been through unimaginable horrors. So of course, 
every day is a gift when when you've been through something like that. Yeah, I think it kind of grounds th- her behaviors in a weird in a weird way because it's like just speaking truly like character study wise, you know, you're like, "Oh, here's this like wacky lady who's just doing all these wacky things like stealing cars and running up on sidewalks and like doing all this stuff." And you're like, I don't know. Is it is this just some free wheeling hippie? Is she on drugs? Is she, you know, sundowning? Mm-hmm. Like what what could it be? <laughs> but it's like the thing the thing that that moment does is that it's like a reminder of like why she is the way she is and it's like well of course. Like then it becomes like really important to the story because you're like, well now like this is coming from a place of of pain and suffering. Yeah. So it's like Okay, like it just kind of reinforces the message of living your life, right? It's, it's absolutely good. it's good. Yeah, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful and again subtle moment, but yeah. you know, then then that becomes even more punctuated what you're saying about, you know, kind of grounding this character um becomes more punctuated as the movie goes on because you realize there is a much bigger reason why Maud is also acting so outrageously. Mm-hmm. Um prior to that though, Harold and Maud get down. And they have this beautiful night at the carnival <laughs> on the pier. And he gives her a gift that she immediately throws into the ocean. And she's like, oh, so that I'll always know where it is. Like, she's one of those. She just has so many wonderful lines in this film. And then you don't see them bone. But, you know, you get Harold waking up next to her in bed, blowing bubbles. And he yeah. has no never shirt looked on. happier. No shirt on. Yeah. Never looked happier. Okay, I want to ask you, like, if you can remember the first time when you saw this movie. How did you feel when that happened? It was very surprising. I did not know they were going to take it in that direction. And I wasn't grossed out or anything. I was just like, oh, wow. Yeah. I did not realize that this was developing into a romance because I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. I was shocked, too. I mean, and again, like, divorced from... Like, I I didn't feel like it was gross, but it was like a moment where you were just like, oh, like, they actually had sex. Like, it's like, I thought they were just going to be sitting on the rock, holding hands, but they actually fucked. And then, I mean, you know, you don't see the pumps, of course, you don't see the pumps, but you just are like, like, and then you do see like Harold with no shirt on and he's just like, in his like, post-sex haze. And I'm like, (laughs) oh, Dang! Like, oh, dang. <laughs> They're blissed the fuck out, and she's asleep. And I think what I love about it is that it's so... It wasn't on my radar, because at that point in my life, they never showed older women as... They've shown, they showed them as being sexy, but not sexual, if that makes yes. any sense. So it was like, oh, Sophia Loren is so hot. And I'm like, but... There's, she's never in a movie, like, boning or, like, getting down with somebody, like, younger or whatever. Like, sexy but not sexual. So I think it was a real turning point to even consider that that was possible. Yeah. And plus, I mean, I got to say, like, I'm looking at this from, like, of course now, where, you know, a quote-unquote old lady is, like, 55 Mm-hmm. maybe 58. <laughs> I'm looking at this through like a modern lens, which is like an old lady, quote unquote, in a movie is 55 
right, sixty. Ruth Gordon is seventy five in this movie. I think that's fucking incredible. Like I'm just like, yo, like it's not as if like she's not Catherine Zeta Jones as someone's grandma. She's a seventy five year old woman, and she had, and of course, this is the seventies where everybody had their natural teeth and shit. So it's like that thing where you're like, oh, like this is an actual older person, and it's kind of amazing. It truly was revolutionary. Yeah. Truly revolutionary. And it wasn't done for laughs, and it wasn't done for, um, like, the, again, like you said, there's no pumps, so it wasn't done for just the novelty of it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a crucial part of the story, and it's a crucial part of the growth of, of at least one of these characters. So, yeah, I completely agree. Like, her being actually 75 and looking actually 75 in this movie and still getting down, it was great. Yeah, it's awesome. Great. So, Harold is like, cool, you want me to get married, Mom? I am getting married to fucking Maud. (laughs) And then all hell breaks loose when Maud reveals to him something. Let's say it's it's a birthday gift that she's given to herself. And Mm -hmm. there is one scene where... Harold is kind of upset, and after this, you know, Carol's upset, and he's saying, he says, I love you, and she says, oh, that's wonderful. Go out and love some more. And I start crying at that point, and I don't stop until the movie's over. Yeah. <laughs> like, until the movie is over. Um, it is so such a beautiful and life-affirming film, which is a strange thing to say about a film that features a character who is so obsessed with death. Yeah. Um, but also in the way that I think a lot of modern movies are made to kind of like have women as the bystanders that teach men a lesson. This movie didn't feel like that. Like Ruth is, sorry, not Ruth. Maude is a very, Maude is a very um, well thought out and lively character. She has a full narrative. She has a full arc and she has a lot of agency. So even though Harold does learn things about himself as a, just by province of being in her orbit, that wasn't the whole purpose of the character. It was like, I'm going to teach this young guy about life. So I think that part of the reason it makes me so happy at the end, even though I'm always crying, is that he has figured out a balance by having Maude in his life. It's such a great movie. Like, there are so many things that I even noticed about it watching it this week. Like, she feeds birds. I mean, that just made me so emotional. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, oh, she she puts the bird seed in that little slingshot. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I was like, shooting bird seed everywhere. But she's so tender. And, you know, I mean, part of it, you know, part of what I love about this movie is that it does feel like it's part, it is a counterculture movie to me. Because it does feel like, I mean, I think it's because of Hal Ashby, the director. But also the era that it was made in, which is that, you know, we're we're talking about people who are outcasts, mm-hmm. you know, and the people that d- don't get understood by people who are his mom, rich socialite types, his uncle, weird military types, you know, obviously Vietnam. Like hyper, hyper-masculine. You know, so, yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I don't know. It's it's just the ultimate story about two misfits who find each other. It's timeless. It's beautiful. I mean, it, to me, like, you don't have a movie like Wes Anderson's Rushmore if this doesn't exist. You just don't Absolutely. have, like, so many things because of this movie. And, I mean, honestly, like, every time I look at Harold, uh, I'm like that. There are a hundred guys right now that look like that. Like, there are a hundred guys wearing those, like, pinstripey, bell-bottom trousers. 
I was like, fucking Harry Styles is out there trying to ape this guy's look. Like, give me a break. He's iconic. He's iconic. And so is she. The strokes don't exist without this movie. Yeah, exactly. Neither does Jarvis Cocker, hate to say. (laughs) Jarvis Cocker absolutely does not exist without this movie. Yeah. Have you seen the cover of Further Complications? It's like, oh, we got a tall, skinny guy in a fur coat? Come on. With Come bell on. bottoms on, let's do this. Let's yeah. do this. But it's it's a perennial favorite. It is absolutely in my top five movies of all time. Um, I love watching it. I love the feeling this movie gives me, and I cannot stress enough how funny it is. Okay, even though it's sorry. dealing with such intense, like such an intense narrative, it is so funny. It is deeply well written, but it's also so funny because of the acting like Bud Court just gives certain looks and kind of does certain movements and it's just genuinely hilarious Um, and I think every I still think every teenager should see this movie especially if you feel like a weirdo or an outcast it was crucial that this film was introduced to me at the time that it was introduced to me Um, I don't know if I saw it now I would still like it now but I don't know if it would be as impactful if I saw it as a 45 year old definitely I asked my sister tonight I was like do you think Henry's too young to watch Harold and Maude. She's like, he's seven. I don't really know if he, if we should be watching, if he should be watching a guy put a gun to his head to fake his own death. I was like, okay. I know. Heard. (laughs) Seven. You're like, calm down on the cool ant. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect for the theme, um, obviously. And I'm so glad I got to watch it again. Oh my God, my movie. So my movie for the theme Bang into the oldies is a movie from 1974. It is written and directed by Rainier Werner Fassbender, and it's called Ali Fear Eats the Soul. Was ist denn? Ali nix schläft. Viel Gedanken im Kopf. Will sprechen mit dir. So look, not gonna lie, I'm bringing a big gun to the table this week. <laughs> okay, like it's a it's like a big world cinema staple film school film. I think it's a masterpiece. That's just me, but also, like, it's probably on the sight and sound list uh, of the top 100 best movies on planet Earth or whatever that list was from a few months ago. I I have, I think I've brought this director up, uh, Fassbender. I think I've brought him up as, like, a joke many times in previous episodes, but I feel like this might be the first time we're actually talking about one of his movies. So, yeah. I will say I'm gonna I'm not gonna actually like go through his biography because it is wild as fuck. There's so many things. And considering that he died in his late 30s, the guy lived so much life in that short period of time. So your homework is to go read about it. Just even <laughs> if you just go to Wikipedia, like yo, like like the the stories of the boyfriends and crashing the Lamborghinis and he just kept buying more Lamborghinis. Like it's, it's, it's totally insane. You got to look it up, but he's a fascinating person, Fassbender. And he was a very prolific director in this like short period of time that he was alive. He was a queer man. He made very political art and it has intrigued me Ever since I discovered him in college, I I took this undergrad class about new German cinema. 
Mm. which is essentially like the period of German filmmaking in like the 70s and 80s, like Vim Vendors and, you know. And it was like, this was the example. This was like the shining example of the era of his filmography. And, you know, I just kind of got obsessed with him. And, and I got obsessed with him because if you know me, and if you, especially if you've listened to our episode about All That Heaven Allows, right? I'm obsessed with classic melodrama and with the director, Douglas Sirk. And unsurprisingly, Fassbender was also obsessed with Douglas Sirk and discovered Sirk, at, you know, after he had made a few movies and he just sort of like thought, what an incredible storytelling device, like the genre of melodrama, right? And so basically, Ali Fear Eats the Soul is an homage to All That Heaven Allows. It's it's the story of an older woman being in a relationship with a younger man. Our, fits our theme this week, obviously. And the thing about Cirque, really, is that he influenced a lot of directors. I mean, I basically, like, I think when it comes down to it, the big three, Pedro Maldivar, Todd Haynes, Fassbender. They were all obsessed with Cirque, and it's it runs through the veins of all of their films. Completely. And, you know, there are so many books and there are articles that are written about that, so go look it up. It's interesting to read about. So, but I will say this. The, I think the difference between Ali Afir, It's the Soul, and All That Heaven Allows is the racial element, right? Yes. It was because Fassbender is a political director... You know, it's it's front and center in his mind in this era, this like post World War II Germany and this cultural climate, right? And so he's using melodrama to tell this story, this political story about racism and immigration and nationalism, and like, you know, I just think that's really interesting. And and you know, and especially if you think about if you think about the characters of Emmy and Ali who are in the Fassbender film. This isn't Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson. They have tons of contradictions, especially when we're talking about the racial element of their relationship. And so they're not perfect people. They do good and bad things, you know? And that, mm-hmm. that to me, is, I think, a, l- a little bit different than, you know, obviously, like, the Douglas Sirk movies. But, you know... Yeah. And even they, also, in- they have the, um, the distinction between this and All That Heaven Allows as well is that they're more on the same class level. Yes. Um, Whereas in, you know, All That Heaven Allows, that Jane Wyman character was very well off. And, you know, they're not exactly in the same class structure, but it helps to understand, like, how this would even come to be, in a way. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, as opposed to, I think, Jane Wyman, who, like, basically looks at the Rock Hudson character's life and sees it as an escape from her life, right? That's the difference, is that basically it's kind of like these two characters in Ali Fear, It's a Soul, are definitely more... They're they're both othered in a, in a very class-based way, which is right. really interesting to me. So at the front and center of this movie, you've got the central couple, as I've alluded to. You've got Emmy who is played by Brigetta Mira, and Ali, who is played by El-Hedi Ben Salim. Uh, he was actually Fassbender's boyfriend in real life at the time oh. of this movie. And 
you know, if you know anything about Fassbender, he had a, a company of actors who he worked with all the time, time and time again. But he, but Brigetta Mira was one of his, in his, you know, stable of actors. So at the beginning of the film, Emmy, you know, she's an older woman. She's trying to duck out of the rain. She walks into this bar and she sees this crew of like young people hanging out there. And eventually, this younger Moroccan man comes over and asks her to dance, okay? His name is Ali. They they chat about themselves as they're dancing. And I think the, the, the reason why they start dancing to begin with is, like, one of his friends, like, one of the women in his crew is like, go dance with that old lady. Yeah, she dares him. Yeah, she kind of dares him to do it. And he just was like, okay. But then they end up having a good conversation. And then he's like, ends up walking her home. Then he comes up for a drink. I mean, it's going real fast. They co- they and then they start commiserating about again this like this sort of like this thing that they share, which is that they're just sort of like like Emmy's husband has died. Her kids are grown, okay? She lives alone and because she was you know, I guess she because she was a wife, she never felt like she built up a skill set for anything. So now, as an older woman, she's cleaning buildings for a living. And she's embarrassed by it, though. That's mm-hmm. the thing, is that she's embarrassed by the fact that she's a maid, essentially. And Ali, who is telling his story to her, he moved to Germany from Morocco to find work. He's, you know, obviously, like, an immigrant. He's working at an auto shop. And as it turns out, everybody around him is super anti-immigrant, very racist, and it just really weighs heavy on him. You know what I mean? So these are both working class people who feel like they're being kind of shunned by people in their lives in their own separate ways. And this is like the thing that they they bond by. And then, very quickly, they end up spending the night together. They're both lonely. (laughs) Yes. And that's the thing, is that, like, kind of in the... It goes a lot faster than Harold and Maude, obviously. Yeah. But there is no, like, big joke to it. You know? Nope. Like, there's no, like, ooh, isn't it weird that this young guy is fucking this old lady, which is just like Harold and Maude. It's just, I mean, it, it's a little surprising, but it's not like this big, huge joke, you know, right. which I appreciate a lot. Yeah. So after they spend the night together, they actually start dating. And so now Emmy's neighbors and her coworkers, they're, see- they're seeing them together and they're saying awful things about him. Uh. Everyone they run into is such a pain in the ass bitch. Yes. Like just racist, horrible assholes. Yes. I mean, it's like imagine all that heaven allows amped up to like the nth degree. There is just ter- they're terrible people saying filthy, filthy racist things. You know, at some point, Emmy goes to see her daughter, who um her husband, by the way, is actually played by Fassbender. And he's kind of like in full Stanley Kowalski mode. He's just kind of like a pig. Uh, He's not in the movie for very long, but it's like a thing where I'm like, I love that he made the most out of his own cameo. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But Emmy tells her daughter, like, hey, I'm in love with this guy. And the both of them are like, 
you're fucking joking, right? But they get fucking married. Like, Emmy and Ali get married. And and the way they they des- they decide to get married is fascinating because her landlord, imagine your landlord having a say in who is in your house, obviously, like, or who you're dating. And her landlord is like, you can't have subletters because he just assumes that that's what's happening, is that she's yes. been subletting a room. Right. And she's like, uh, we're, he he's not my renter. Like, we're going to get married. Yeah. And so when she and Ali are talking, he's she's like, oh, fuck, like, I just told the landlord that we were going to get married so that you could continue to live here. Um, and he's like, no, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's let's all, get married. Yeah, there's all these, like, subtle assumptions in this movie about age and about race, right? Like, the landlord is definitely like, oh, that's, like, some guy that needs a place to stay like, he doesn't even assume that they could be in a relationship. Yeah. But weirdly all. enough, the landlord is probably, like, the one of the least judgmental characters in the film. Yeah, like, I kept waiting for him to be like, I don't care, get out of here anyway. Like, but he never rises yeah. to that level. Well, and the, I think it's really interesting that both the landlord character and the police officers are the least judgy about the two of them. And I'm like... That's interesting because usually it's the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. People in power. Um, but look, my one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the scene of them in the restaurant after they've been married, okay? So Emmy takes Ali to this Italian restaurant that apparently Hitler loved. I mean, okay. can we talk about the fact that she just casually mentions that she was in the Nazi party? Well, and it's like, this is the thing that I that I'm that I'm talking about when I'm talking about how these characters aren't perfect. There is no absolute good or bad binary thing happening in this movie. Like the the idea that this woman brings this brown man to Hitler's favorite restaurant and doesn't even understand the nuance of that is wild. Right. Well, and that's that's what I mean. That's kind of why I want to talk about it because I feel like it's also wild that she would date a brown person to begin with. Because how are you involved with the Nazi party, but then you also have this part of you that can fall in love with a man from Morocco? Like it's just she's completely. I don't know. I just I find it interesting that they don't dig into it very much, but it kind of there's an assumed evolution that has happened in her life. Mm-hmm that made her not like her neighbors and all these other racist people that she was around, but she was also still part of the Nazi party. So you're like, wait, how do these two things exist in the same person? Well, and like, there's there's a, there's a scene that's going to come up that I want to talk about too that's related to this, which is that basically it's like, it, it, it feels like it, almost like a modern concept in a way of like the person who isn't like functionally racist, but then has sort of deep-seated behaviors that are not serving that. Yeah. You know yeah, what I like, mean? You know, when your family members all vote conservative, but then you're like, your niece is black. Like, how are you? Yes. It's that kind of thing where you're like, wait, I don't understand how yeah. this is disconnected for you. Yes, exactly. And that's why I think this movie is so fascinating because it's not, it's complicated. It's not easy. It isn't, you know, like, a, I love this man and I, I stand up for him while also taking him to Hitler's restaurant. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. crazy. But the the thing I want to talk about in this scene that makes it my favorite is that it's just, like, a beautiful scene. I mean, they're sitting... It's like they're both sitting on the same side of this booth. The framing is really wonderful. It's, like, it's yeah. shot through a doorway, right? And at the in the restaurant, they're, like, the only couple in there, and they've got this, like, waiter that's kind of there 
uh, taking their order. And she's trying to order fancy foods because they just got married and they're trying to celebrate, but she doesn't know how to order fancy food. And it's just this reminder that, oh yeah, like these are two working class people and and that's something that bonds them. But then it's like this, this kind of like, uh, you know, moment where she doesn't know how to, what temperature Chateaubriand is supposed to be at or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she's just like, I don't know how to order this because I don't eat this in my everyday life, you know? And it's just, it's just another interesting little, a little moment in the film that says so much, you know what I mean? Definitely. So at some point she gets her fucking kids together and tells them, guess what? I got married and guess what? He's Moroccan and he's way younger than me. And much like all that heaven allows, they flip the fuck out. One of her sons calls her a whore and kicks a TV, kicks out the screen of a TV one of them is basically like, we're dead to you now. <laughs> yes. You don't have children anymore. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting thing how in All That Heaven Allows, the TV is the source of misery. Yes. Much like, and there's a TV getting smashed in this movie. Very, like, I don't know TV. if that was intentional, but, you know. Why'd you have to go out and bone that guy? You have a TV here the whole time. Yeah. Let me kick it out because I'm so pissed off. But... Here's the th- the moment for me that really makes it almost personal for me. So they're married. There's a corner store in their neighborhood, and she tells Ali, go out to the store and, and get some groceries for me. And when he gets to the store, the fucking guy who owns the store treats him like an idiot, you know? And he's basically like, I can't understand you. Come back when you speak German. And they did it on purpose to fuck with him. Mm-hmm. Like, they basically, like fucked with this guy, made him feel like a horrible person that didn't speak their language. And that shit, I used to watch my mom get treated that way when I was a Mm. kid. And I've stood there when people in stores have talked, like, to my mom, like she was an idiot, you know, (sighs) little girl, and have not have been, like, very performatively being like, I don't understand you. What are you saying? And it sends me into a murderous rage, dude. Like, I mean, you have no idea. I'm very sensitive towards it. And when I saw this in the movie, every time I see this in the movie, it makes me, it makes like all the hair stand up on my body. It just fucking pisses me the fuck off so bad. And it's it's so egregious in this film where he, the store owner is basically saying, he's like, I want this limonello or limoncello or whatever. And he's like, puts up a bottle of beer. And he's like, no, 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 like the butter. And he gives him something else. And then he keeps just going back and forth between these two items. And then his wife comes in and she's like, "You." he's talking about the new margarine. And the guy's like, oh, you think I don't know that? Yeah. Like, he's just so arrogant about his refusal to serve this man. Yeah. Who just, like, it, the transaction could have been completely finished in the time it took him to be such a dick to this guy. Yeah. And he's just ma- making him repeat the things that he says, and he's giving him the wrong thing. It was a fucking agonizing scene. And it, yeah. it just pisses me the fuck off. I just get so mad on his behalf for that. And quite obviously, like, the shunning that they're getting is breaking Emmy. Like, she's like, I've had it. She's like, we got to go on vacation. Like, we can't, we got to get out of the city for a while. It's too... It's too hot. <laughs> I hate I hate the way people are treating us, right? So they come back from vacation, and it's like this weird thing where they come back, and all of a sudden, everybody's being nice to her again. 
And really, it's because they need things from her, like favors, like her fucking neighbors, like, hey, can I borrow your, you know, basement? She's like, okay. The, you know, freaking store owner that just disrespected the fuck out of Ali's, like, well, now I want her business back. So mm-hmm. let me be nice to her and him. And it's just like that thing where I'm like, it's such hollow bullshit because it's like, it's just people who want something and now they're like changing their tune about everything. But the thing that interests me the most in terms of this character development of Emmy is that now she's like relieved to be back in the fold with these people. Mm-hmm. Instead of being like, fuck you, you treated me like shit. You treated my husband like shit. I don't want to have anything to do with you. She's like so indoctrinated that she wants to be liked by them. You know what I mean? And she's Yeah. And beyond that, she also starts treating her husband differently. Like you notice at this point in the movie is when she starts ordering him around a lot and kind of like loaning him out to people. And so she's happy to be back in the fold, but she's still not considering his feelings or his treatment at all. Yeah. And there's that scene, too, of, like, when she brings, like, her girlfriends over, and then she's like, look at my hot husband, and they start, like, touching his body and ogling him, and it's just, like, it's so insulting. Like, it's insulting Mm -hmm. to him to be treated like this exotic, you know, young brown man. I mean, it's just, like, really, really weird in that moment to know that that's kind of, like, what happened, like, with Emmy's sort of, like, post-vacation evolution, you're like, what the fuck happened? Like, now all of a sudden you just want people to like you so bad that you're willing to sell out your husband. But you know what? I mean, that's the thing. Again, complicated characters. It's a it's a rich text. Because the other thing that happens after this is that, you know, Ali is getting angry because there's like, this. Ha- this is happening. Also, he's saying like, Hey, wouldn't it be great if you like cook some couscous sometime for mm-hmm. me? And my, you know, this like food that I like to eat. And she's just like, No, I don't like it. You got to eat German food. You're a German now. And it's just that thing where I think that he has his own breaking point with that. And yeah, he's being denied his culture and his identity. Right. He's being told, like, you need to assimilate to my culture by her. And he ends up running away and he ends up like having an affair. And it's not great that he does that, but I think in that moment he felt like he needed to be understood in mm-hmm. a, in some kind of way by somebody who wasn't going to like, he just wanted to get out of the dynamic of this, right? But then there are moments too where she comes back, like Emmy comes back and, you know, she's trying to appeal to him to come home and she goes up to his work and like, he kind of like shuns her. Like he gets him. totally disses her. Yeah, he totally disses her and it's, very hard to watch because it's like all of his like fucking buddies are like hey who's your grandma coming up here to visit you and he's just like yeah yeah my grandma you know and i'm just like damn dude like so it's like again very complicated for him too because it's like he was just like brutalized by all these people but then he can also be brutal right yeah it's just really, really interesting. I mean, honestly, I'm not, I mean, I won't give away the rest of the film, you know, but I, cause I just really want everybody to watch it. I just, I think you should watch this movie. I, I think it's a masterpiece. I, I, it's, it's, to me, the style of it is very appealing. It's very restrained, very compelling love story, you know, kind of a classic formalist film, you know, which is that 
everything has meaning, like what's in the frame, the colors, the objects, the shots, you know, where everybody's standing. These are all helping to tell this story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, like a, again, like we just talked about Wes Anderson. I mean, like he's like, he's that this kind of director, you know? But I, I just love the style of it and the actual story and the characters and how it's not an easy thing. Like they're not completely unlikable and completely likable. It's complicated. Right. And a lot of the scenes have a lot of like great like deadpan stares. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of characters that are literally, they're holding scenes where people are just staring at them. Right. It's so and, much tension. Oh, I know. Beautiful. And and like again, and when you when you think about that. With the idea that there's a lot of shots coming from doorways and coming from other rooms, all of this is 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 underscoring the ideas of judgment, right? Which is the entire theme of this film, really. So I just love this movie, like for so many different reasons. It's very textured. It's the, it's the shit that I love. Like it's really like a hearty meal. So, and for the theme, hey, beautiful. I don't I don't actually know how old Emmy is supposed to be in the film. She seems like she's in her 60s. Yeah. But that's what I would guess. Yeah, but it's um it's it fits the theme and I'm glad I got to watch it again. So I love that you picked this because I want people to watch it too. I think it's a it's an incredible film and it's I just like the movie. And I think that if if you're at all intimidated by like German cinema or this style of film or this like this is a great jumping in point. Yeah. Um for you to, you know, kind of see that the the stories are so rich and the, like Millie was just saying that the, the stories and and the backgrounds and the framing and everything is helping to tell this story in a way that just is lovely to to jump into. Yeah. And thanks for bearing with me as I waxed poetic on uh, an old film school classic, folks. <laughs> hey, listen, here's something that I realized uh, talking to some of you guys like out there during the book signings and the when Danielle and I came to Atlanta and anytime people have approached me about the podcast, a lot of people appreciate the fact that uh, we can, you know, give them a little a little version of something that they can take back to the men in their life and be like, guess what, bitch? I know about Ali Fierce Assault too. I know about Harold and Maude, too. You you want me to tell you about Hal Ashby? I got you. And I'm like, good. <laughs> Let us be that for you. If, you try, if you're trying to get in an intellectual debate and you want to listen to an episode to help you with that, that's cool. Oh, hell yeah. I'm always down to be on the side of somebody who's, like, using us to make a point. hundred <laughs> percent. Well, listen. If you want to email us, we're at asawajadidpod at gmail.com. Um, we love questions for bonus episodes. Keep them short and sweet. Um, FMKs that and the like, we love it. So send them away. Short questions, not journal entries. <laughs> and we also have a P.O. box if you want to send us your journal entries and handwritten letters. <laughs> which you can find on our socials because we are at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. That's right. And finally, we have merch. Go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find hoodies, Bargello kits, pins, whatever you need. We got you. All right. I feel like we should give them the movies for next week. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. They are not ready. 
I'm just saying it right now. This shit is is talk about barn burner. These two movies, you're gonna go through time and space. You're gonna go into another dimension. Okay, the movies for next week are Sneakers from 1992 and Hackers from 1995. Oh yeah, I know you think you know the theme, but remember. This is something I need. I feel like people need to remember when they're guessing the theme. It's through our brains. So it's never going to be as cut and dry as what you're currently thinking, probably. Also, you have to get every single word of the theme right or else it doesn't count. <laughs> so if you, if you were like, if you guessed fucking to the olds this week, you got it wrong. <laughs> I'll just throw that out there. It's banging to the oldies. We will accept no substitutes. Listen, well, Danielle is... doesn't come up with these gems just to get them like halfway. In order to in order to win, you have to get the wording right. So, well, I love doing this podcast. I'm so this episode was great. I loved watching these movies. I watched them back to back, true double feature style, and yeah. just my emotions were all over the place, and I loved it. That's right. Always a fucking pleasure to do this podcast with you, Danielle Henderson. See you next week, everyone. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.